This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. Welcome one and all to the program, to the broadcast, The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from the friendly confines of 550 Queen Street here, the flagship station of my fledgling little network. Uh, we now have uh, the flagship station, by the way, being... Zoomer Radio, the all-new AM740. And uh, last week, did I mention this? We had three new affiliates. Let me welcome them again, just for those of you who weren't paying attention. Uh, three uh, new stations joining The Conspiracy Show from uh, the Empire State, New York. We have WBNR AM1260 in Beacon, New York. I like to think of this show as kind of a beacon a beacon of truth, a beacon of light. Uh, Kingston, New York, uh, is WGHQ AM, 920. And Peekskill, New York, Peekskill, P-E-E-K-S-K-I-L-L. Peekskill, New York, WLNAM, AM, 1420. Welcome, one and all. Glad to have you aboard. And those uh, three stations are part of um, uh, a a radio group called Hudson Valley Radio. So, as I said, we've got Hudson Valley covered pretty well. And um, hoping for more. Hoping for more stations to sign up to the the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. That would be me. How are you? We have, uh, in just a few moments, I'm going to speak to a gentleman who's a directed or is a um, man behind a, a new film, a feature film entitled The Conspiracy. How appropriate to be talking about that film on this show, right? Well, it's, it's a, well it uses a strong blend of fiction uh, and allegory to explore the, uh, the issue of what he calls illusory democracy, which kind of blends in with what we'll be talking a little bit later this hour. Uh, when we welcome back to the program, I like this guy a lot, uh, he's a rogue investigative uh, journalist by the name of Greg Pallast. And if you've been following the presidential election down in the excited United States, the excited states of America, as they say, uh, 
you might as well stop watching because according to Greg, it's already been decided. He's got a new book out. It's actually kind of a comic book. <laughs> this is what it's come to, right? This is how you have to get the information to the masses in comic book form, but he's done a great job. And it's called Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, How to Steal an Election in Nine Easy Steps. And he's going to talk about uh, Karl Rove and uh, their billionaire buddies and a massive vote tampering scheme uh, that um, essentially has seen as many as about 5 million Americans denied the right to vote. Legitimate votes, plus uh, that were tossed out, for example, in 2008, just tossed out for no reason, and then many other uh, voters denied the right to vote. How does that happen in the land of the free? We'll find out when Greg Pallast uh, joins us a little bit later in this hour. Billionaires and ballot bandits, how to steal an election in nine easy steps. And he, he, he'll uh, tell us or explain um, how the election is going to be stolen for the Republicans. They're not the Republicans anymore, really. They've been infiltrated by the like, the neocon globalists, I guess, masquerading as conservatives. Uh, but if you, I mean, if you look at the the, the polls and so, uh, to me, to me, it's Barack Obama has this thing running away, walking away. But Greg Palast will disabuse us of that, perhaps, uh, when he comes on at the bottom of the hour. Uh, first up, though, there is a um, a film festival. In Austin, Texas, it's called the Fantastic Film Festival, and uh, it um, I think it kicked off on um, on Friday. And one of the films debuting at the Fantastic Film Festival is called The Conspiracy. And one of the people behind that film joins me on the line from the great city of Austin, Texas, to explain more about the film. Christopher McBride, how are you? I'm good, Richard. Thanks uh, very much for having me on. I saw the trailer. In fact, people can uh, can uh, log on to uh, my website here, uh, richardserrett.com, and uh, just click on Watch Trailer under tonight's show. And first of all, congratulations. It's it's a it's a nice piece of uh, um, the filmmaking. I mean, it it grabbed me in that uh, I don't know three minute trailer. Tell us a little bit about the film. It's a, it's a, it's fiction, but it's as you say, it's it's also allegory to to uh, to explain what you feel is really going on in the world. But but just give us sort of a, a a brief synopsis of the film, if you could, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a a film about uh, two documentary filmmakers who. Um, they start a documentary about um, conspiracy theorists, quote-unquote conspiracy theorists. And uh, they're two very skeptical guys. They don't really believe this stuff at first. And, uh, and then one of the conspiracy theorists that they're profiling vanishes without a trace. And so then they start wondering, well, maybe he was onto something. Maybe this you know, wasn't just paranoia. Maybe he uh, had some... Uh, actual truths he was finding out. So they start looking into his work, and then they start figuring out that he actually did, uh, was uncovering some uh, some pretty scary stuff about secret societies and uh, and things like that. And it's, uh, the whole story, you're right, it is fiction, but I what I've done with it is I've actually intertwined actual 
um, uh, uh, issues that are that are very real, like the um, um, you know everybody's questions about uh, the truth about September 11th and uh, the influence of uh, societies like the Bohemian Grove and the Bilderberg Group and things like that. So basically, a lot of issues that don't really get discussed out in the open in the uh in the mainstream so much um uh and so that that uh is, is something very interesting to me about the film that uh it has the the possibility at least of getting into the mainstream and and really getting out there and and being covered by many journalists and and being in theaters and and people seeing it who would never normally know anything about this stuff so um, even though it is it is a fiction with real stuff intertwined, the real stuff that's intertwined is stuff that uh, I think was new to a lot of people and uh, will be uh, a little shocking to them as well. Well, I, I think it's a very wise uh, move on on your part. First of all, are you the you're the, one of the producers? I, I'm the writer and the director. Writer and director. Okay. And uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the the, uh, the producer or uh, who else is behind this film? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm based in Toronto, and um, uh, the the producers are based in Toronto. They're all uh, they're independent uh, producers, uh, um, and uh, we uh, I wrote the script. Uh, I gave it to them. Um, they loved it. Uh, one of them was familiar with things like your show and 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 um, quote unquote conspiracy culture, as I, I obviously was. The other producer knew nothing about this stuff, and it just blew his mind. He he knew nothing about, you know, things like the questions around Building Seven and um, all that kind of stuff. So he was really really intrigued by it, and he he didn't know. He he asked me, "Did you make this stuff up?" And I said, "No, no. This is something very much discussed by many people." And People have really interesting, intriguing questions about this stuff, and I think it's uh, it's something we could bring to the wider uh, sort of uh, mainstream. Uh, and uh, and he just thought that was amazing. And so then we took it to um, uh, Telefilm Canada, who is a big sort of um, uh, uh, so, sort of like an American studio that funds Canadian films. And to be honest, I kept expecting to get this shut down. I kept expecting someone to slam the door in my face and say, you know, you can't, you can't make a movie like this and put it in movie theaters, you know. But uh, it, it, it just simply hasn't happened yet. We had a, a little bit of uh, uh, pushback here and there about certain uh, naming certain people specifically that we were told, you know, you can't do that. But uh, but generally, they um, uh, I've been able to sort of slip it under the radar so far. So we'll see what happens once it, it just premiered this weekend in Austin, and hopefully will be released much wider after that. And uh, uh, yeah, we'll see how people react. If it, uh, I'm sure it will make some people very angry, and um, and others will love it. But uh, it'll be interesting. Christopher McBride, the writer director of a, uh, a new feature film called The Conspiracy, uh, a Toronto-based uh, filmmaker, and the film is uh, has debuted at the fantastic film festival in Austin, Texas uh, this weekend. Now, first of all, I think you made a wise decision in fictionalizing this because um, I think it was, uh, I think Marshall McLuhan, the great media, uh, media scientist said that we, 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 we lie to each other through television, but we tell each other the truth through film. And uh, with a fictionalized version, it is more uh, palatable to people. It's, um, and it, and it is, you're right. If, if you, if you, if you present it as documentary, you are setting yourself up to be attacked, really, and shut mm-hmm. down. But if it's fictionalized, even you can, can you can sort of, uh, I guess, uh, not disguise, but you can you can place these little nuggets, these little bombs, information bombs in there, 
uh, presented as fiction, but again, because it's allegory. I mean, that that has always been throughout history one of the most. Uh, I mean, you think of, of of great writers like Jonathan Swift and and and, and others. Uh, the use of allegory to explain what is really going on in the world, um, but disguised as fiction. It's a very powerful tool. So, first of all, kudos of you for presenting it in that way. And again, the trailer looks a very. It looks like a very compelling film. This individual that played the conspiracy theorist, the you know, he he looks like the sort of the stereotypical um, ranting and and raving lunatic that uh that you know or a mad prophet that no one but maybe a scarce few takes seriously we see we see him in the film sort of wandering in the streets with a megaphone and a sandwich board trying desperately to get people to pay attention to him and this is the fellow that disappears correct yes that's right and uh and you're right he 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 appears as the the most stereotypical uh as you say mad prophet conspiracy theorist uh, quote-unquote crackpot and at the beginning of the film and part part of part of the reason for that is that um, uh, I, I, I knew a lot of people watching the film would not know that uh, would not agree with many of these things would not agree with this information and would not be would not believe any of it um, so I, I sort of had to start from a position of okay um, I know this is the way you see these views I know most people see these views as outlandish and unfounded um, so I, the main characters in the film start out that way. They see him as this crazy person on the street. They see him as someone who's sort of comical. And the evolution over the film is that they slowly stop looking at the surface of how he appears to the public and start really um, listening to him and actually listening to what he's saying and looking at his research. And so um, it was really important for me to make him appear in the character's eyes as um, as a bit of a loon in the beginning, and then that's part of the sort of journey of the film is that you realize, you know what, maybe the person yelling on the street actually might have something to what they're saying. And you, you do talk about the influence of secret societies such as uh, Bohemian Grove and the Bilderberg Group, and uh, I, I think you, you also have created this fictitious group that we can talk a little bit about when we come back. Uh, Tarsus, is that the name of it? That's correct, Okay. Yes. Christopher McBride, Toronto filmmaker. The feature film is The Conspiracy, debuted this past weekend at a film festival in Austin, Texas, and we'll tell you more on the other side. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416 360 0740 or toll free at 1 866 740 4740. Toronto based writer, director, Filmmaker Christopher McBride is uh, joining us on the line from Austin, Texas, where his uh, new film, The Conspiracy, uh, a, a fictionalized uh, a version of the world as, as he knows it, and some of us suspect uh, it might be, and, uh, uh, but uh, using a very powerful tool of allegory to, uh, again, explore the issue of what he calls illusory democracy. And, uh, Chris, uh, we were talking about um, 
in the film, you, you, you discuss some of these secret societies, the Bohemian Grove and the Bilderbergs, which we've discussed recently on this program. Um, but you also talk about another group. This is, a, this is one of those fictionalized uh, uh, groups, and that's, uh, it's called Tarsus. Uh, tell me about Tarsus. Well, the, the Tarsus Club is, is basically um, something completely out of my imagination. It's something, it's a fictional secret society that I've made up, but where I drew the inspiration for this was very much from, I would say, sort of a combination of the Bohemian Grove and the Bilderberg Group. And um, there's a scene in the film where the main characters uh, actually infiltrate one of the secret meetings with hidden cameras, and um, some of the rituals that they uh, tape these hidden cameras are very, very close to some of the actual things that I'm, I'm sure you and lots of your listeners know do actually go on in the world. Um, and so it, it's really, um, like, like you said earlier, you know, allegory is a really strong tool, and sometimes it's, uh, it's a way to have people open their minds to ideas that they normally may not be open to. And as long as you tell them it's a story, which it is in the end, um, you know, then they're willing to go different places with you. And so, you know, I hope in some small way when people see this movie, and even though they're, it's, uh, it's a fictional sort of organization, it's very much tied in with the real things that go on that the vast majority of people have their, their eyes closed to. And, uh, and I think that a lot of people will do their own research and figure out sort of the truth behind the fiction after they, they see the film. As a filmmaker, did you get into filmmaking because you wanted to make this movie specifically? In other words, you believe that the world is run in a certain way, uh, and so you wanted to get that message out to people, or are you simply a filmmaker and this was a good yarn, this was a good story that you also wanted to, wanted to tell? That's a great question, yeah. No, I to be honest, I, I, I was, I'm a filmmaker first and foremost. I... Uh, for years and years, I, I actually um, uh, I didn't believe uh, a lot of this stuff, a lot about the influence of secret societies and things like this. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, Mike, uh, actually was a, a, a very um, a big believer in this stuff, and he was always telling me, you need to watch Loose Change, you need to watch Zeitgeist, you need to you know, look at this stuff, it's fascinating. And when I finally did start looking at it, I just, I, you know, my, my mind was blown. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, I have doubts. I'm, I'm, I'm a naturally a skeptical person. You have to be. You have to be. Advocate. And, yes. But, have to be um, but that sort of got me fascinated with all of this stuff. And I, the thing that fascinated me the most was that um, it's so uh, rarely spoken about in the mainstream media. More than anything else, that really intrigued me and I wondered why that was. So first and foremost, I just wanted to tell a good story. I'm not a political activist or uh, anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm a filmmaker, um, but I thought this was a really intriguing story that had not been told. And, um, and these are intriguing ideas that are, that are very serious and are going on in the world that, uh, that aren't being talked about. And that's sort of what every filmmaker searches for is, is something new that the, um, that the public hasn't been exposed to. And, then, uh, and, and working on the screenplay and writing it and researching it, did that change your worldview? You, you went into this as a skeptic. I'm not sure to what extent you were uh, a hardened skeptic, but how did you come out of this process? Were you, did you have an entirely different view of this strange planet? Yeah, I mean, I, it definitely changed my uh, worldview. I mean, I, I had never heard of things like the Bohemian Grove beforehand. Um, so um, certainly, yeah, I, I, I look at the world in a little bit of a different way now, and, uh, and I realize that, uh, 
you know, with just because something is on CNN does not make it necessarily true, um, you know, as just as a small example. But uh, I, you know, I, I think the biggest thing I've taken out of this whole experience of writing the screenplay and directing this film is that, you know, the term conspiracy theory is a, is a very broad uh, umbrella term that gets just applied to so, so many different things. And it's not always fair to lump in uh, smart, well-educated, well-meaning people who have serious questions to lump them in with every um, extravagant theory that's out there. But people like to do that. They like to paint it all with the same brush. And I think, uh, you know, th- there are some uh, what people would call conspiracy theories that I, I don't necessarily agree with, that I think are um, a little outlandish and there's not data to back them up. But I think there are others that are very on the mark and um, just very intriguing. And, and I think the bottom line is uh, society needs people to be asking questions. And it's unfair that conspiracy theorists get shut down and called, you know, tinfoil hats and all that stuff. It's, it's, uh, it, you need to have people asking questions in a society. And that's what I took away most from this experience. The, the term conspiracy theory now has been utilized as a, as a method of ending an argument or ending discussion, mm-hmm. uh, so that if you offer up a differing view that doesn't fit comfortably into someone else's worldview, then whatever it is you've said is labeled as a conspiracy theory. It's gotten to the, to the point where it's, it's become absurd. Um, I mean, I, I, I like to think that one of the missions of this program is to take that term back, uh, the word conspiracy. A conspiracy theorist is what we used to call investigative journalists, but they don't exist anymore. We now have... Uh, pundits disguised as journalists uh, parading uh, on, on television uh, and then throwing out that term when someone says, ah, but what about this? Uh, well, you weren't supposed to point there. Look over here. Look at this shiny object. Look, look, folks, here comes Honey Boo Boo. Have you seen that new show? Let's watch that. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, a, it's become a, um, uh, a pejorative term. And so, um, again, I, I think you've shown you know, great courage in going out and making a film about this. How was it, how was it received this weekend, uh, The Conspiracy? How was it f- uh, received at the film festival in Austin? It, it's been received unbelievably well. Uh, I, this, this, the, they had to actually add extra screenings at the film festival because there was such high demand. Um, and uh, word of mouth has been sort of spreading through the festival um, a lot of buzz, a lot of people very excited about it, and I, I've just been, uh, you know, cornered at every uh, turn by people coming up to me and telling me how much they loved it, and, and, and many different types of people. Some people who, um, you know, might be someone who would be a typical listener of your show who, um, you know, very much believe these things already and, and just sort of thanked me and said, this is so amazing to see this. Um, in a in a sort of a more mainstream sort of story like this is uh, really interesting and other people who knew nothing about it who are just questioning me and like how much did you make up like how much is real and um, you know and I encourage them to do their own research because I'm I'm no expert I just did my research and uh, but I but I think that's good those are those are minds that are open to other possibilities mm-hmm. now and uh, it's it's been really well received people I would say. Ninety percent uh, absolutely love it passionately, and there's maybe a ten percent who um, it's hitting buttons that they don't like to be hit, and um, uh, are, are are really sort of uh, reacting violently to it. And because they, a lot of people don't want to hear stuff like this. They they have a preconceived notion, like you said, 
the term conspiracy theorist is used as a weapon to end an argument and to put a label on um, a very broad set of ideas. Uh you're saying it's been violently opposed. You mean, uh, I'm, I'm, you're, I'm, I'm guessing you mean verbal violence, oh, verbally, vitriol, verbally, and, yes. and yeah, uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, that means we're in stage, tr- uh, stage two, uh, right? The truth uh, goes through three stages. Uh, first, it is ridiculed. Secondly, it is violently opposed. And third, finally, it is accepted as self-evident. So we're two-thirds of the way home, and uh, in part thanks to uh, filmmakers like yourself. Is this slated for wide release, Christopher? Well, uh, that's what we're hoping. We just the the sort of the way um, uh, it, it it works with smaller independent films is you you make the film and then you try to get into big festivals like this one, and then um, lots of sort of uh, film distributors are here. So um, and we'll be playing. We're just starting our festival run now. So we'll be at this festival. We'll be at one in Spain very soon, and then we may be at um, quite a few more after that. And um, so that goes on for a few months, and then throughout that process. The people who are interested in the film and uh, believe in it um, hopefully pick it up, they buy it, and then they say they are going to release it widely in theaters. So um, at this point, your guess is a, as good as mine, but it, uh, it looks very possible that uh, in one form or another it's going to be uh, uh, released uh, so that everyone can see it very soon. Well, I have a sneaking suspicion, uh, Chris, it's going to be very well received in places like Spain. Uh, they, not to overly generalize, but outside the, um, the, uh, the, the, the media firewall that surrounds North America, uh, I find people are far more receptive to these sorts of ideas. You only need a casual glance at the, uh, the foreign press uh, to realize that, um, you know, that they are, they are open not only to, to uh, discussing uh, conspiracies and cover-ups and, and uh, assassinations and the, the hidden the hidden actions uh, behind the uh, the hidden meanings behind the actions of world leaders, but also the whole UFO uh, a topic, which is an entirely different field. But they are just generally more open to discussing these things. So I think it's going to do very well in places like Spain. So uh, so good luck to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, and I and I agree with your assessment. I think uh, when you get outside the uh, North American sort of media bubble a little bit, there is a, a slight bit of more open-mindedness, definitely. Now, is that featured at all in your in your film? Uh, the this this firewall, uh, this um, let's say let's let's call call it for what it is: the complicity of the mainstream media in keeping a lid on on some of these things. It absolutely is. Um, I'll try to figure out how to explain this without giving the ending of the film away to your listeners, but um, there's one idea that was really important to me with the film is that it's hard to trust the messenger. You know, that, you know how do we, news is not really news anymore. You know, you, you watch Fox News, you watch MSNBC, you know, like, is this really news anymore? It's, it's, it's people controlling the message. And, uh, and so, uh, without giving too much away, um, you're, you, throughout the whole film, you're meant to believe this is a documentary film that's been made about this subject, but then there's a big twist, and you realize that it's very possible that the very people that we have been investigating in the film have taken over the film and um, are trying to manipulate um, the viewer's thoughts. So it's sort of um, it's a device in literature uh, that they call an unreliable narrator. So... Um, uh, it, it's, it's sort of hard to visualize without seeing the film, but basically um, it plays into the idea that you should not trust 
anyone uh, uh, one source of information. You should always try to look into it yourself, and uh, and that even includes the fictional film within a film that I'm making. Yeah, that I, I love the. I mean, they're not even having seen the film. I'm, uh, I love that device. You have a film within a film, and then, as you say, this unreliable narrator. The narrator, of course, is omniscient, uh, right? Uh, he, he's like authority. And yet he's unreliable, and that's a wonderful metaphor for <laughs> what's going on in the, in the media. Exactly. Yes, Christopher. Thank you so much for your time. Thank appreciate you very it. much for having me on. I really appreciate it, Richard. Christopher McBride, a Toronto-based writer, director, filmmaker, and uh, a feature film called "The Conspiracy," a fictionalized version of uh, really much of what we talk about on this very program, and hopefully coming to a theater near you. I think we should all get out and and, and support it because. Um, uh, this is one way of delivering the message, uh, disguised as fiction. Sometimes that's the way you have to do it. The other way, of course, is uh, to put it in comic book form, which is what my next guest uh, has done, and uh, he'll be joining us momentarily. Greg Pallast is... Uh, now, case in point, here's a, um, a New York-based reporter who's really in exile in his own country because he can't get really published in, uh, you know, the... Uh, the news organs in uh, the United States, uh, you're more likely to read him in places like The Guardian, uh, you know, where he wins all sorts of awards for his reportage in the UK. But again, in here in North America, uh, he's seen as, uh, I don't know, a subversive, as a conspiracy theorist, perhaps. And he's now set his eyes on um, the election process in a new book, in comic book form, as I say, called Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, How to Steal an Election in Nine Easy Steps. And we're going to talk to him uh, in just a few moments. Uh, I can't wait to have this discussion with him. He's talking about massive voting tampering. You will not believe the numbers he's going to throw at you, the statistics. Going back to 2008, how many ballots were cast and never counted, how many voters were basically chased out of the ballot booth, told to get lost? Just a quick uh, question. And, and what do you think? What do you think these voters that were disenfranchised were? We'll find out. Greg Palast on the other side, on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serra. Don't you dare go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. A I was uh, uh, telling you about conspiracy theorists. Uh, that's what they call them now. Uh, once upon a time, we used to call them investigative journalists, but I've got an actual investigative journalist on with me right now. Uh, this is what the Chicago Tribune uh, said about Greg Palast. He's exactly what a journalist is supposed to be, a truth hound, doggedly independent, undaunted by power. His stories bite. They're so relevant, they threaten to alter history. And uh, Noam Chomsky... I'm sure many of you listening are fans of Noam Chomsky. He said this, Greg Palast upsets all the right 
people. His new book uh, is actually uh, based on the investigations uh, of himself and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for Rolling Stone magazine. And it's called Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, How to Steal an Election in Nine Easy Steps. Greg Palast, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Uh, pretty tired. <laughs> yeah, investigative reporting can be quite exhausting. Uh, but uh, I'm just uh, I'm here on the uh, uh, in San Francisco. It just uh, so how's it going in uh, in your end of the uh, well, regime? Well, we're sitting back and and uh, and watching uh, the electoral process unravel, I suppose, <laughs> down there. Uh, uh, interesting that you put this in comic book form. Now, I'm not sure if that's a. Uh, I mean, it's it's clever, but is that is that maybe more of a sad commentary on how you have well, to deliver I'm the message? Break, you know, I'm trying to break through the electronic Berlin Wall in America. Remember, I, I was just on uh, on uh, your CBC television primetime, and I report for BBC television primetime news night all over the world. But in the U.S., you know, as you know, when you try to break through uh, the the, uh, the sound barrier, the information barrier in the U.S., it, uh, you're you're doomed. So I've had to go to Canada. I've had to go to. Uh, uh, moved to Britain to report the news about my own country. Yeah, you're in exile in New York. Yeah, so I, I now I've now gone back to New York, but still to get my stuff uh, through the media um, through uh, through the embargo of information. I try every stupid trick I can. So billionaires and ballot bandits has a 50 page comic book in the middle, and um, and then uh, you know and, and so. And I try to write it in a way that's entertaining and, and humorous so mm. that, you know, you won't burst into tears reading this stuff or just, you know, hide under the cover. It is a divine comedy, isn't it? Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. the way you have to tell it. It's true. I was just speaking yeah. to a filmmaker, and he's, you know, trying to get the message out in a, in a fictionalized film using allegory. So uh, why not a comic book? Let me, let's, let's set the table here. Let's go back to 2008, and because you lay out some pretty uh, frightening statistics. First of yeah. all... You mentioned that uh, how many ballots were cast in 2008 that were not, uh, or, or sorry, there were cast no fewer than ballots that were cast and never counted. In the USA, the um, the cradle of democracy, which is now becoming its grave, is 2.7 million ballots. That's the official number, by the way. I don't make this. Greg Palace doesn't come up with this stuff off his black helicopter. The official word is that 2.7 million. Um, ballots were cast and never counted in the U.S. In addition, three point, at least 3.2 million people, citizens, American citizens, legal voters, were uh, removed from voter rolls in America um, and or re, uh, re kicked out of uh, polling stations for various cockamamie reasons. We have a you know we play games in the U.S. to knock out voters. It's uh, but it's not just any voters, and that's the evil. So you have 5.9 million votes and voters tossed, tossed and, out. And keep in mind, I you know under the U.S. weird electoral system, the presidency of the United States in 2000 was decided by 537 votes. 537 votes. And in Florida alone, um, for those who know Greg Palace, I'm the one who figured out how they removed tens of thousands of black people off the voter rolls of Florida. So that certainly was accounted for your 500 bo votes right. that elected George Bush. And then we had thanks James to Catherine Harrison part, who also uh, yeah. loves you. She calls you twisted and maniacal. Well, she's kind of correct, but <laughs> she's never. I, I didn't. You know, that's that's true. But she never said I was wrong. <laughs> facts. She complained to Harper's Magazine. 
I was twisted and maniacal, but I, you know, the, yeah, I mean, I have to twist and I have to follow her around. Uh, so, the, the, but the problem is Catherine Harris is like Thomas Jefferson compared to what we have now. We have, um, you know, uh, and, and that's the problem we have. While 5.9 million votes of voters were trashed, according to official figures, in 2008, double that in this year's election. So, you know, I know that people are laughing at Mitt Romney because he's, he's swallowing his own grenades on a constant basis, right? And uh, he, <laughs> he's done everything but, but hit his caddy with the golf club, right? Uh, and, but that doesn't mean anything in terms of what will actually happen in November in the U.S. Okay, just hold on, Greg. We'll, we'll take a time out when we come back. Let's find out. Because, you know, uh, even a casual observer looking at what's going on down there is, is thinking, okay, the incumbent is going to take this in a, in, a, in a cakewalk. But let's find out what might be in store. Billionaires and ballot bandits. How to steal an election in nine easy steps. Greg Pallast on the line back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Greg Pallast is with us, the author of Billionaires and Ballot Bandits. Uh, Last time we spoke, he just released Vulture's Picnic and uh, the New York Times bestsellers Armed Madhouse and the Best Democracy Money Can Buy, an investigator of corporate fraud and racketeering, Uh, He turned his skills to journalism. He was quickly recognized as the most important investigative reporter of our time. And, uh, Greg, we should point out uh, that a lot of these statistics about uh, uh, purged voters and and destroyed ballots, this comes from the Election Assistance Commission. I mean, as you say, you you didn't make these things up. This comes from an official body, the Election Assistance Commission. It's out there for anybody to see, but nobody's talking about it. All the... Everyone's talking about... In the U.S., all these pundits masquerading as journalists are talking about voter fraud, but they're not talking about who's really behind the scenes purging these, uh, you know, these voters and so forth. What, this, what is this bill of goods voter fraud? Yeah, well, yeah, well, as the great investigative reporter, reporter Yogi Berra once said, uh, you know, it's amazing what you could see when you're looking. <laughs> um, but we don't have reporters in America. We have repeaters. And one thing that they're repeating is the line that there's fraudulent voters out there. Yeah, there's a lot of voter fraud caused by the guys who run the voting system, by the billionaires um, who are stealing the ballots. But individual voters in America don't vote illegally, and because it's really easy to get caught, you do go to prison every single time. In fact, um, statistically, and I actually did the calculations, I used to teach statistics, it was... um, the chance you will be hit by lightning is 60 times more probable than that you will commit uh, voter fraud. You know, vote, which basically what they mean is like taking someone else's ID and voting for them. Like we had like 10 nuns who were stopped from voting in Indiana because they didn't have the right ID. Obviously, they had stolen their habits and tried to pretend that they were these uh, nuns. Um, there were ten of them. They went. They uh, huh? um, the uh, uh, so that there were ten uh, 
they ran from ages 88 to 98, and they didn't have their driver's licenses, which is a good thing. Right. Agreed. But they were barred from voting. But, uh, and then that case went to the Supreme Court. And the main thing is, while they were wearing black habits, uh, the other voters knocked out in Indiana for not having ID, for supposedly being fraudulent voters, were 87,000 people, almost all of them African-American. Right. Right. There is a surprise. In the U.S., very few Americans have passports. Uh, the Only the poor don't have driver's licenses, and that tends to be the black and Latino voters. So um, it went to the Supreme Court. We have a uh, Justice Scalia, as he mispronounces his Italian name. Can't even get that right. Um, and Scalia, when... Uh, it's a you know it's against the U.S. Constitution to have a voting restriction which affects black people more than white people. It's just, you know very clear you can't do that. Yeah, we were, I thought we already won that one. Yeah, we already we had a civil war in America if you remember, and then we had the Martin Luther King and the Voting Rights Act uh, by Bobby Kennedy, my co-author's uh, father, and which is why he's so shaken up about it. But it went to the Supreme Court, and Scalia said, uh, um, well, whether you're you know when he was told that it's you know, 17 miles to a, uh, on average to a government office to get a non-driver um, ID in Indiana. And 17 miles, he said, well, 17 miles is 17 miles whether you're black or white. Now, I think what he meant by that, because being an investigative reporter, you'll see in Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, we actually checked it out. He, Scalia, drives a black BMW. So he's got a black Beamer. So... 17 miles for him is about 15 minutes. I know that because he, he's speeding. That's how I found out what type of Beamer he has. <laughs> uh, he does. He's got a speeding ticket. And so I think what he meant was whether you have a black Beamer ah, or a white BMW, that must have been it. It really yeah. doesn't matter. That must 17 have been it. miles is like, it's no big deal. But, right? but you, you pointed out that over 22 million people have been purged from the voter rolls in the last two years. 22 million. Is that a problem? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, only if you care about wow. it. Yeah, 22 million. How do they do that? Uh, Who's doing it? Who's okay, doing this? They have, they have um, well, there's, the, the answer is there's two words here, data trust and themis. And since this is the conspiracy show, you'll love this. Um, and by the way, I'm not a conspiracy nut, as I'm often called on U.S. TV. I'm a conspiracy expert. Believe it or not, I actually was a conspiracy, the conspiracy expert for the United States Justice Department on racketeering cases. To bring a racketeering case, you have to prove conspiracy. So I was the government's conspiracy expert. So I, I'm officially re- registered. <laughs> there you go. And, yeah. um, it's so a real word, and it exists. One. Okay, huh? sorry. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's so a... I, yeah, that was my job. So um, the um, uh, Carl Rove. Otherwise called, uh, who George Bush gave the uh, uh, odiferous um, nickname, Turd Blossom. <laughs> Mr. B- Mr. Blossom, <laughs> it's true, Mr. Blossom um, has created a massive data mining operation called Data Trust. The Koch brothers, David and Charles, have created another massive data mining operation called Themis. Themis. You've now, and then a guy... A third guy, because they were kind of in competition, Turd Blossom and, and the Cokes, the Coke Blossoms. Um, and so uh, a third guy, Paul the Vulture Singer, and again, I, didn't, I don't give him the name the Vulture. If you may, uh, may remember him from Vulture's Picnic, um, he's now the, the lead donor for Mitt Romney. So he put uh, um, 
turd blossom and the cokes together. So you have data trust and theme is kind of working coordination. What that is, it basically is a database which would make the uh, FBI green with envy. It you know knows uh, when you sneeze, and they use this information to use every oddity of the law, and then sometimes uh, way beyond the law to wipe out voters off the voter rolls. They who use are incredible, who- brilliant, sick tricks. Though Bobby Kennedy who is a, the dean of the law school at the, in the New York at Pace, he uh, says this is something you go to jail for. But they're not in jail. Now, now the, uh, ostensibly, then, I guess they're trying to remove those voters, most likely in this case, to vote for Barack Obama. Yes. And, so one, or, and, and by the way, in the U.S., they're very, very concerned about seizing control of the Senate, which I – that's the other thing. So while people are saying, ah, they're not going to steal the election – well, they may not be able to seize the White House um, if Romney, you know, keeps up this, uh, you know, his mad, his crashing his golf cart. But if, uh, but that doesn't mean that they won't steal the Senate. In fact, the University of Minnesota, this is kind of a dull statistics, but I think it's an important one, has said that these various tricks of uh, vote manipulation have cost uh, the Democrats seven seats in the U.S. Senate. So it's very likely that they can use this, these tricks to, uh, to pull off control of the Senate. Then they'll have the Senate, the Congress, the Supreme Court. Then it doesn't matter um, who's in the White House because they'll basically be um, under siege. <laughs> you know, they'll be cut off. I mean, you know, they, they might as well just you know, put a picket fence around and, uh, and that's it. He's under, basically, the president will be under house arrest if this continues at this pace. So... What's happened is how do they do it? How you know how? So you got a database. What does that do for you? Um, for example, when um, I uncovered how Catherine Harris used databases to uh, uh, data mining to uncover, uh, she found she said felons, illegal voters in Florida, and not in most of America, but just in Florida and two other uh, old southern states, ex-cons can't vote. So she said that there were um, 94,000 ex-cons voting in Florida, which is a hell of a kind of crime wave of criminals, because you, you go back to jail for that. So that, that a lot of people taking a chance. Um, there weren't, <laughs> we actually went through with the attorney general himself, the guy who would arrest these people, that there were no, that there wasn't a single, not one, six possible out of 94,000 illegal voters, but none of them uh, in the end proved true. All innocent, but they were all guilty of voting while black. Now we don't. We're not guessing that they were black because next to their names it says B L A for black, uh, which is by law. Okay, um, and so the the more primitive and early data mining was able to zoom in on B L A voters and come up with, um, for example, um, a uh, Willie Steen who was a Gulf War veteran, never had a traffic ticket. He was uh, barred from voting in 2000 by Catherine Harris because his name matched with a guy who was convicted in the state of, Ohio, of another state named Willie Osteen, like an Irish name with a O and apostrophe, uh, a white guy. So a, a white guy named uh, Osteen knocked out Willie Steen, the black guy of Florida. But they used an algorithm to say that this was how Willie Steen, hit, how the criminal uh, hid himself by transforming his name. Now, it, is this over with? No, they've gotten quite a bit better at it. Uh, and so, for example, in the state of Florida, they have 
tens of thousands of people who have been wiped out on this. And again, remember, Obama won Florida the last time by just a few thousand votes. Well, I was going to ask you this very quickly, Greg. If if this same process was in place, maybe a more, a more crude uh, methodology was being used, but if it was in place in 2008, why did the Democrats win the White House? Well, like I said, there were 5.9 million votes, and Obama, it was a, a tidal wave. Plus, don't forget the other side of the book. The book is called Billionaires and Ballot Bandits. Those billionaires supported Obama or stayed out of the race. For example, Dan Loeb, a very creepy guy, uh, a billionaire who con- took control of Yahoo. Um, and um, he, he was a big supporter of Obama. Obama got supported by billionaires like Penny Pritzker. You'll find her in the book. Uh, she's a banking criminal. I mean, um, you know, Willie Sutton had nothing on her. She uh, ran a bank called Superior Bank. Um, she was personally fined $400 million. Now, that would put a dent in my checkbook, but for her it was nothing because she was worth $3 billion. Um, but she looted, she looted a bank and uh, victimized a lot of poor black people in Barack Obama's district. So she decided that um, to take Barry Obama, turn him into Barack Obama, and make him a U.S. senator, then president. She's the one who introduced him to the banking chiefs So of uh, Robert Rubin and... Um, um, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan. So Obama had all these financiers and billionaires in 2008. And even the Republicans still stole about 6 million votes, but it didn't matter because in the end the money and the machine was, um, you know, with uh, hope and change. But I hear what you're saying, Greg, but to me then it sounds like, well, okay, so they're stealing the election, but you know, who are they stealing it for? You know, it's either, what are, what are my choices? I, this crook... Under the Republican banner, who's supported by uh, ballot bandits and billionaires, or this crook, who may be slightly less slimy than this crook. What's the difference then? Well, you know, every, you know, it was Jimmy Carter who said Americans deserve a president as good as they are. And unfortunately, that's what we've gotten. And, um, and yeah, every four years we get to choose our nightmare. But I still don't want some billionaire bastard taking my choice away, no matter how grim it may be. So to me, I wrote Billionaires and Ballot Band. It's not because I want Obama to be reelected. I don't care about Democrats. Democracy is my issue. And I do feel that, that movements have been very powerful as we've built an electoral base. And then finally, once in a while, we get someone who might actually do something. But so to me, it's not, the can- it's not about the candidates. It's about saving what's left the process, of right. the images of democracy in America. And that's, you know, um, because the rest of the world pays. When you have an electoral coup d'etat, like George Bush stole the election, clearly, as I, you know, as I laid out in 2000. And then he did it again in 2004. And by the way, unlike Al Gore, who who hates me, who says, we hate that SOB. um, Al Gore hates me for, you know, saying, why didn't you stand up when you had the proof? Uh, and but his uh, in 2004, uh, Senator John Kerry lost and cited my research as proving that he had won. So, not everyone goes to. But he went to the mat at first, which is a shame. Yes, yes. And and that's because Al Gore, he noticed, is worth over 100 million dollars. The boy got taken care of. The boy got taken care of. Oh yeah. Kerry knew that he'd be taken care of, but then he felt there's no question. Ted Kennedy grabbed him and said, "It's not about you. It's about." a million black people who lost their vote. Greg, i got to cut it there because we're out of time. Yeah. But again, let's uh, let's get the word out. Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, How to Steal an Election in Nine Easy Steps, Amazon.com, I'm guessing? 
Amazon and the usual suspects, and absolutely it will be available in Canada, but please, uh, you, you need it. All right, go give them hell, Greg. Catch you later. Thank you, Greg Pallast. All right. You can uh, check out my website for upcoming shows, www.richardserrett.com. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome aboard, friends. Good to have you with me. Let's uh, take a stroll, shall we? Don't be afraid. But let me warn you, things are about to get very, very strange. We're going to talk about uh, something which on the surface may seem too unbelievable, too fantastic uh, to possibly be true, but appears to be happening, uh, happening in plain sight, and uh, has been all uh, quite nicely documented uh, by a gentleman who's about to join me on the line from the UK. But before we introduce him, let me introduce to you another good friend of the program who stops by periodically to leave me utterly gobsmacked. Uh, I, um, I really didn't talk much about uh, UFOs uh, or ETs on this program. Not sure why. Probably something deep down inside me said, don't go there. You'll never be the same. And then this gentleman dar- darkens my door and convinces me that we should chat about these things every once in a while. And he said, if you do, I'll hold your hand. And he does. He comes in and sits down and we, we go places I never would have imagined. And I have been utterly gobsmacked, and I have never been the same. And uh, I promise you, if uh, you continue to listen to this program and the kind of information that Victor Vigiani imparts and my next guest, you will never be the same. Uh, So uh, you have been warned. Victor Vigiani is the communications director with Zealand News Network. If you're looking for news and information regarding UFOs and ETs, this is perhaps the most credible place to go. Zealand News Network. Victor Vigiani, uh, fresh from a, uh, a European tour this summer with his lovely bride, Lori. Welcome back. Victor, 
Good evening. It's good evening. It's great to be with you again. It's been a great journey, hasn't it? Uh, you you mentioned, uh, you know, knocking on your door back. How many years now has it been? Goodness gracious! I well, you were even... you were hosting a, a program or guest uh, co-hosting a program mm-hmm. at another radio station um, uh, called Strange Days Indeed. That's right. And uh, yes. we sort of crossed paths, but uh, we didn't really know about each other. And then I landed at another station. And uh, that's when I got the call from you, yeah. one dark and uh, rain, stormy night. Right. And um, uh, I guess that's probably about 2003, nine, nine, ten, or ten years, maybe. That's Victor. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a wonderful journey, hasn't it? Yeah. Wonderful? Yeah. Uh, Scary at times. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a tightrope. Yeah. Well, you know, what? you, you opened me up to this whole field of uh, ufology and, and uh, ETs and are we being visited? And, and more than that, are they interacting uh, with human civilization? Have they been? Are they? Uh, to what extent? Uh, does that explain certain world events, which leads to this whole field of exopolitics? I'd never even heard that word before I mm-hmm. met you. And then, of course, you introduced me to all of these um, uh, journalists. There are journalists now covering this That's field. Right. Yes. Uh, and this whole idea of, of uh, UFO disclosure, when is the government going to announce what they know, and, and how long have they known, and uh, uh, just totally uh, pulled the rug uh, you know, called reality out from under my feet. And it's I've never my, been the same. It's my job, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's the way I look at it because it's uh, it's a matrix that we're all involved in. And the regular stream of thought that, that that's carried on on a day-to-day basis, you know, with our television and radio news and newspapers and and we go and come, we stop at stoplights, we go when the, when the, the light is green and we stop at the, at the sign and we carry on with the politics of the day. But in reality, there's so much going on behind the scenes regarding off-world civilizations that are engaging us. And uh, people, generally speaking, just aren't aware of it. And that's part of what I try to do. Um, or many, uh, many maybe, and like me, they just don't want to go there, uh, um, but had to be sort of led kicking and screaming. Well, I didn't kick and scream. I wasn't like, you know, a, a schoolgirl, but I, I was a little apprehensive. Mm-hmm. However, I, I feel like I'm in good hands. Mm-hmm. Let's meet another gentleman. Uh, now, this is the thing that blows me away about mm-hmm. this whole field. The people that come, that are sucked into this world, mm-hmm. that come from such impressive, you know, people like Richard Dolan. This is a distinguished historian who now writes about this field. Now, now check this guy out. Uh, after, uh, he's a graduate of Newcastle University. He's got a degree in electrical and electronic engineering. After 12 years working for Rolls-Royce as a software development engineer, he left his job to work as a freelance IT consultant. He first became interested in the UFO phenomenon in the early 1990s when he learned about Bob Lazar, our friend from Area 51, and his involvement in the back engineering of a UFO owned by the U.S. government. That's right, new listeners, that's what I said. A UFO owned by the U.S. government. Frustrated that the ET reality is not correctly represented in the mainstream media, in 2007, Richard D. Hall launched the website richplanet.net. In 2008, he started a campaign appearing on radio programs all over the UK to promote the UFO subject. He writes a UFO column in a local newspaper and has produced and presented two series of television programs for Sky 200 about UFOs. His latest documentary, Silent Killers, tells the story of animal mutilation in the UK, we're going to talk about that, in which it is proved that the governments are actively covering up this phenomenon. Richard D. Hall, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you, Richard, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm very well, thank you. And thanks for getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning uh, to do the program. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not sure whether it's 
late or early, but I'm fine. All right, and uh, say hello to my uh, my guest uh, host or my co-host here, Victor Vigiani. Hi, Victor. Good evening, Richard. Glad you could be with us. We want to talk about um, the case of these disappearing sheep in the UK and how that may be involved or, or, or related to the UFO phenomena. But you, we, I, I, we touched on um, animal mutilations. For those uh, not familiar with this phenomena, give us a, a, a primer. What, what are animal mutilations and how might they be connected to UFOs? Okay, well, the phenomenon, I think, first came to light in the United States in 1967, uh, a case that was covered by somebody called Linda Moulton Howe, which some of your listeners may be aware of. Um, this was a horse mutilation case. And then through the 1970s, in, in quite a few states, predominantly in Central America, there were um, mutilations of, of cattle, predominantly cattle. And the characteristics are um, they have certain organs removed, uh, they will have um, a rectal core, so a cylinder of uh, flesh is taken from, from the rectum. Uh, often sex organs are removed, and uh, often the animals will be exsanguinated. So they, all of their blood is missing, but there's no blood on the ground, and there's no, any, not any evidence of how that blood could have been removed in situ. So there are a whole lot of characteristics which really can't be explained, and they appear to be carried out surgically. Uh, there was a case as recent, I think it was January this year, uh, in Kansas, near uh, Kansas City Airport. And there's been cases this year in the UK of uh, ponies in Devon and Cornwall uh, turning up with the same injuries. Now, one important point is that there's no single human being ever been seen caught or convicted or arrested in any animal mutilation case, and there are hundreds of documented cases worldwide. It, it, you know, the, the term mutilation is a misnomer because, as you say, it's done with surgical precision, laser surgical precision, really. The way that these uh, organs are removed, um, uh, and as you say, uh, uh, the, all the blood removed, no trace of blood spattering, uh, it's, it's beyond uh, comprehension. But it's not just livestock. I mean, you've we pointed out that, that there are other, I mean, um, badgers and foxes and, and yeah. other animals found, correct? Yeah, we had um, a case of a, a mutilated deer and also a stag uh, in the UK uh, this recently, just last year. Um, and as I say, the the people people try to explain it. The, the first thing that they try to explain it as is predation, but. Uh, if you go on my website and look up a film called Silent Killers, you can Silent Killers in Sussex. Uh, we did a whole film about one particular horse, and we we managed to get there quite early. So we've got the whole thing on film, and you can see that uh, you know the the, the 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 cuts on the flesh are 90 degrees. Now you, people would say, well, it's obviously a human thing. Well, this was in an extremely remote place, and as I said, that there wasn't wasn't a drop of blood on the ground, not one drop. Uh, and I was there when the horse was winched up onto a trailer, and not one drop of blood actually came out of the carcass. If that horse had been slain, uh, it should have poured blood all over the ground when it was lifted up. So we think that horse was exsanguinated, and it went for post-mortem. We followed the horse. Now, we had to go back up to the north because we had other commitments. It had a post-mortem, and they've suppressed the post-mortem report. They will not give us a copy of that post-mortem report. We do think... That that animal had had, you know, 29 liters of blood removed somehow. Uh, and wh how is 
how is it that uh, we have linked this phenomena of, of animal mutilation to the ET UFO phenomena? Okay, well, they often occur in areas where UFOs have been sighted, and in particular the case that I've just mentioned there, uh, we were interviewing um, the landowner and various people around the farm, and someone said, oh, um, this guy called Roger, he, he had a UFO sighting three weeks earlier, so I went and interviewed him, and sure enough, he'd seen a UFO in the next field hovering over the, the field, and that, that uh, full report is, is documented in my film. Um, now, some people claim to have seen helicopters in these regions. Um, it's my view that these helicopters are not responsible. I, I suspect that, that the military, in particular organizations such as the NSA, they, they know what's happening with this, and they've got one eye on it. That, that's my view on it. I think a lot of times, Richard, when these helicopters do show up, they show up after the fact, because mm -hmm. uh, in one way or another they pick up the, uh, the occurrence of the UFO, and then yeah. uh, follow up with some sort of, um, you know, sort of investigation or overseeing uh, the area themselves. Now, what they have actually to do with the phenomenon is another question altogether. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I would go along with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th there's nobody witnessed uh, a helicopter directly either taking or returning or mutilating uh, any animal. It's and there's a case in the early 90s, and again in the States, this was in one of Timothy Good's books, where a farmer, um, he heard a strange uh, humming noise on his, on his farm. Uh, he had a shotgun, and he actually witnessed a cow being dragged backwards, in, and he, he couldn't see what was dragging it. Something was moving the animal, so he, sh he fired a shotgun. Uh, it went away, and then the next day he found uh, the cow that had been mutilated. So, and there were similar cases in the UK where people have, farmers who've been, who've had sheep missing, uh, this is in a place called Whitby, they staked out a field overnight, they had infrared detectors to detect any movement, uh, the detectors triggered but they didn't see anything, and in the morning, 60 yards from where they'd been staked out, there's a mutilated uh, lamb, uh, and they didn't see anything. So, I think... I'm of the mind that this is, they're using a, a real covert-type technology to carry out these mutilations. All right, uh, hold on, uh, Richard. That's why no one's ever been seen. We'll, uh, we'll also talk about the case of the 1,500 sheep that went missing overnight from a farm in England uh, last year with Richard D. Hall, a filmmaker, and uh, his website, richplanet.net. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network in studio with me. Stay with us, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome People back. who live nearby say that it was hit by a UFO. Residents remember being woken in the early hours of Sunday morning by a huge crash. When the sun came up, one of the turbines was bent and broken. That came after several witnesses reported glowing spheres in the sky earlier the same night. I just suddenly saw this light appear in front of us and it just seemed to whiz sort of across the sky towards the wind turbines. I said there was two or three of us in the car and I just said to the other two, what was that? 
What was that indeed? Uh, filmmaker uh, Richard D. Hall joins us from the UK. His website is richplanet.net. A rich planet indeed. Strange planet. Uh, we're talking about uh, the animal mutilation phenomena, and we'll talk about some uh, livestock that went missing. 1,500 sheep uh, that went missing from a farm in England uh, last year, and Richard was all over that story. Um, but uh, let me throw it back over to my uh, my friend Victor Vigiani. I know who has another question, Victor. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of um, get a sense of the the techniques that are used um, with this. We we did touch upon it uh, a little bit earlier, but the kinds of wounds that um, I know that have been made on these animals are very very unique. My understanding is, uh, as Richard I think uh, pointed earlier, it's sort of a laser laser precision with these things. But um, in a sense. They are cut out with very little disruption, cellular disruption around the wound itself, which completely eliminates any kind of predators. Um, how, how, what's your sort of take on that? Well, um, there is a group in the UK um, called the Animal Pathology Field Unit, and they have had a pathologist uh, working with them, and he has examined, examined tissue samples. Now, one of the problems that we have, and you're correct in what you say, that, that um, they're clearly not predation tears, uh, and people suggest either high heat or lasers are used uh, during the, the cutting action. However, um, we've had problems in the UK in that um, this pathologist guy was told in no certain terms, you know, uh, it might affect his career if he keeps helping this group. So this is one of the problems to get detailed cellular uh, analysis by qualified pathologists is very difficult. And this is one of the reasons why I'm convinced that there is a cover-up on this. Yeah, it leads me to the next question, Richard, uh, in that with the way this is going on both in the United States, even in Canada and the UK and, and possibly other parts of the world, um, why farmers and, and, and cattlemen groups aren't up in arms about this kind of thing with the, with the persistency with which this occurs and the whole bizarre nature of it. You'd figure that in some way this would, first of all, crack the, new, the, the local news media and make its way through to uh, maybe an international media of some kind. Well, um, I would say to that that the majority of cases probably go unnoticed um, I mean, in any farm, you have livestock which which will die, and then will just be, you know, sent to the incineration places, etc. And I, w- I would suggest that most of them just end up like that. That the farmers aren't really generally aware of this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the cases are, are sometimes horses, and as, as I say, sometimes uh, wild animals. But. Um, there's not really a, a, a wide awareness of this. I, I, I made a film which was shown on TV in the UK, but my show only goes out to about 20,000 viewers, so it, it, it's, it's not widely known about. Let me ask you um, to comment on, on this. Here, you know, there is this huge divide in the, uh, in the UFO uh, community, if I can call it that. You know, we have the portrayal in films which is sort of, there's a, there's a contradiction. We have certain uh, alien films, you know, that portray E.T. as foe. We have other films uh, that E.T. E. is, you know, is friend. It's, it's going to save humanity from itself. 
Uh, and this, of course, all, it gets wrapped up in the whole disclosure movement as well. Uh, you know, do they hold the keys to free energy and the cure for cancer and, and all our environmental degradations? If only, you know, we, we, could, uh, we could contact them. I'm wondering is what your thoughts are on, the, on one scenario in that the a- animal mutilation uh, phenomena is man-made in order to further, uh, I guess, uh, under, undermine the idea of ETs being friendly uh, or to, to, to position them in public consciousness as something to be feared, uh, as something evil. Okay. Um, well, I know that um, the person in the UK who's probably got more knowledge on, on mutilations than anyone is a guy called David Caden. He's um, ex-RAF, and he, he, he held a, a, a quite a high job in British aerospace. Now, he would say that it's definitely not a, a human phenomenon. He, he doesn't buy, that, buy into that, just due to the number of cases and the locations where they're found and the fact that there's never any witnesses. Um, it, would, it, it's a very, it would be a very, very contrived, convoluted way of trying to um, make people think that. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's, um, that it's being done as a psyop. That's what you're right. suggesting, a psychological operation. I, I don't think it's a psychological okay. operation. Uh, now, I'm, well, I'm willing to debate whether it's something non-human or not, um, but one thing is for sure, there's a cover-up on it. That, that's, and I've presented evidence in talks of this, of various farms that have had animals confiscated, or people have turned up when no one actually knows there's animals mutilated and they, and they confiscate animals. This has gone on in the UK. So, and one woman who was involved in confiscating an animal, someone who worked for Animal Health, she actually told the farmer, we have operatives throughout the UK in animal health positions looking out for these types of cases and we confiscate them. So I'm convinced there's a cover-up now. If it was being done by the government, why would they need to cover it up? It's, um, for me, I, I think it's more likely some kind of non-human uh, phenomenon. But, the, but whoever or whatever it is, is, is got either covert technology or is interdimensional or there's something which is otherworldly to it. In, in 1996, I had an opportunity to, uh, to visit uh, New, New Mexico and Nevada and visit some of the places that have become notorious, not only just for uh, UFO sightings and activity, but with the local farmers that have actually experienced this kind of thing. And I spoke with uh, an actual farmer and, and his wife regarding uh, the area in which we were visiting in New Mexico. And I asked them, I said, have you, have you experienced this kind of thing? And both of the, uh, the individual said, yes, we have. And I was, uh, you know, I didn't really care too much about the actual animal, uh, it, it, you know, phenomenon itself. It, that wasn't the issue that I was trying to get at. What I was trying to ferret out from these individuals is the kind of pressure that they were under, um, as you kind of alluded to, not to say anything or to make anything of this. And there seems to be a concerted effort by authorities, as you seem to be hinting at, that uh, thou shalt not talk about this. Thou shalt not uh, make a big deal about it. How much of this kind of pressure do you, do you know or feel might be exerted on, on the um, on the livestock owners in this regard? Well, I, I don't think they have to exert too much pressure. I think the general perception in the media is 
there's a giggle factor mm-hmm. that you're seen as uh, unstable if you come out with such claims. And uh, I know of farms in the UK where um, farmers are convinced that there's UFOs appearing above their land, but they will not go on camera. They, they, they are very wary of that. I think it's more of a cultural thing as opposed to an actual act of government cover-up. But that, that culture is, I think, is brought about by many, many years of negative reporting on the subject. And I think that's an actual deliberate action. The lies protected by public incredulity. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you, uh, have you had uh, people that you've spoken to off the record, that will not speak on the record, uh, that would, I mean, if they would go on the record, it would it would perhaps blow this thing wide open. I mean, have you talked to, I don't know, uh, uh, people in law enforcement uh, 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 or, or other scientists who have told you off, off the record again that this is what's going on, but they will not take that extra step and go on camera? Well, um, it's difficult because I believe whoever and whatever is behind it, 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 is, it is deliberately covert. So they deliberately are not leaving evidence behind, which makes it very difficult for someone to come out with the, with the uh, smoking gun evidence. I don't think there is. I think they work very hard to make sure that the general public don't have smoking gun evidence. Uh, and and that's, that's the cover-up, and whoever's doing it works hard not to leave evidence. And so you're saying that there's no one in an official capacity that has spoken to you off the record and said, listen, we know something's going on, but we just no, don't understand it. No, 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 no nobody's, nobody's done that. Okay. I mean, I did, th- th- this, this, the case of the um, disappearing 1,500 sheep, which we could come on to, I, I did speak to the detective twice on the telephone, and I've, I've got um, quite a detailed statement from him, which, and it's, it's his statement which leads me to believe that there's something more to this case than, than just sheep r- rustling. Well, let's, let's go... One, one L- Leah, we should get into that, because yes. I've been involved in this for 35 years, this whole ph- UFO phenomenon, and in reading this on your website and, and talking to Richard about this a few minutes ago, I just find this completely and totally unbelievable. I, and, uh, you know, I'm skep- skeptical in some ways, but when I mm-hmm. heard this, I said, my goodness... What is going on here? Yeah, let's let's at least begin this uh, conversation, and and uh, you know we'll resume after a, a break, which is, is which is forthcoming. But fifteen hundred sheep they went missing literally overnight from a farm Correct. last year. Tell t- tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, this was first reported. Um, uh, it actually happened on the evening of the tenth to the eleventh of September last year, and it was reported, I think, on the Sunday Times and on the BBC web website. So, which read, uh, the BBC website read, uh, sheep stolen from Stenegot, which is an area in the northeast of England, uh, for illegal abattoirs. Police believe almost 1,500 sheep stolen from Lincolnshire may have been taken to unlicensed abattoirs. The sheep were taken from a 40-acre field in Stenegot near Louth. Now, a couple of things about this. Um, firstly, if the area that they were taken from is a real UFO hotspot. It's actually been named in the local press as the Lincolnshire Triangle. Now, this is about a 15-mile-sided triangle. It's a fairly small area, and where these sheep disappeared from is basically on the edge of that triangle. And the other, the other thing, that the, the clip that you just played there, the other incident that happened in 2009 was this wind turbine, which a blade fell off. That is also in this triangle. Now, 
uh, it was passed off by mechanical failure by the company that run those turbines, but there were multiple witnesses saw UFO over the turbines on that night, so I'm convinced that was UFO related. Now, to get back to the, the animal abduction, um, as I said, they, they disappeared in one night, and it, it would have been dark because uh, they were witnessed in the field at 6 p.m. They were gone at 9 a.m., so it was probably dark, and there's that particular field... It's, it's a, an oblong-shaped field. It's about 450 yards by 220 yards. On one side is a very, very narrow road. Uh, the other side is an electric fence leading to another field, and the other two sides are both leading to other fields. There's only one gate leading out onto the road, so there's really only one gate that it would be physically possible for trucks to have taken the sheep from. When, when they arrived in the morning and found the sheep missing, the gate had a padlock on it with the chain intact, and the gate, there was no evidence at the gate that any sheep had come through. Oh, my. Fifteen sheep had come through. There would have been droppings on the ground. There would have been wool in the hedgerows. And the detective stated to me categorically, there was no evidence that any sheep had been taken from the field. But they did suspect rustling, right? Because uh, somebody yeah, was, well, was imprisoned. See, this is the assumption that they've just made. And in, you can actually listen to the detective speaking uh, about this on the BBC website if you were to Google them, um, sheep stolen from Stenegot. Uh, he doesn't really mention any actual evidence of rustling. He, he's making an assumption there. Um, I mean, it's a bit like your, your last guest uh, was talking about the media when he said, um, we have repeaters and not reporters. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, you, Really, um, they're making assumptions on on what's causing it. And actually, but they arrested a man. Oh yes, absolutely. They arrested three people. Okay, this was about three weeks after it happened. Let me just jump in here, Richard. We'll we'll uh, we'll continue on this uh, story of the fifteen hundred missing sheep uh, and the wrongly convicted sheep rustler. Correct. Uh, when we come back, Richard D. Hall, filmmaker, on the line from the UK, Victor Vigiani, in studio from Zeland News Network as we discuss bizarre UK animal mutilations and mass unexplained animal disappearances. What is the connection to UFOs? We'll delve into that as well. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Animal mutilations and mass animal disappearances. Richard D. Hall, filmmaker from the UK, joins us. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network. And if you're new to the program or this type of program, uh, and you've now been initiated into the, the world of uh, ETs and uh, UFOs, uh, a little bit later in the program, we'll tell you how you can uh, listen or, or uh, meet Victor Vigiani in person and hear him uh, speak on these types of subjects. Uh, relating to UFOs and ETs, um, not too far from uh, uh, this uh, radio station uh, in southwestern Ontario, an upcoming uh, speaking engagement from our own Victor Vigiani. We'll tell you more in a moment. But Richard D. Hall stays with us, a filmmaker from the UK, and we're talking about this uh, mass disappearance of 1,500 sheep from a, uh, a, a, a farm in England last year at about this time. 
And uh, with, so within the space of three hours, they were last seen at 6. By 9, they were gone. One gate in and out of no, the field remained. More than three hours. It was 6 p.m. and 9 a.m. Ah, my so, apologies. Okay, yeah, but the, 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 hours. the gate remained padlocked. Correct. Had not been tampered with. Uh, no signs of, as you say, no no uh, wool in the hedgerows or anything that would show, uh, you know, some sort of a, a struggle. Uh, I mean, how many trucks would you need to round up and cart away okay. 1,500 sheep? Yeah, the, the, the trucks in the UK, the largest ones, typically hold about 500. So you would need three or possibly four uh, trucks. All right. And down a, a, a narrow, windy road in rural uh, England. Yeah. Uh, and no one heard or saw anything, presumably. That's a good question. Um, the nearest house to the field is about 80 yards away. Uh, I interviewed the couple who live there, and they have a dog which barked throughout the whole interview, and the, their dog did not wake, and they didn't hear a thing. And they, they were actually visited by a special branch, which is kind of the equivalent of the FBI uh, uh, in the UK, and they were interviewed. Because it's quite a, quite a large crime, if, if indeed that's what it was, um, 1,500 sheep, it's about 100,000 pounds worth of uh, livestock. Right, right. Okay, and um, so this individual, the suspect that was uh, yeah. j- jailed for rustling, uh, how did they, how did they uh, finger this individual? Okay, so what happened, three weeks after it, um, it was reported, it, it was reported that three people had been arrested, okay? So I just sort of left the story. I thought, well, maybe it's rustling. Some time went by, and it didn't say whether they'd been charged or whether they'd been convicted. It just said that they'd been arrested. So eventually I decided to go and investigate. I spoke to some people in the village, and one guy said to me, he said, oh, well, the landowner, who's also the animal owner, he says the shepherd is responsible. But the shepherd says he is not responsible. So they were both saying, I'm not responsible, I'm not responsible. So it turned out, I found out that the the person who was arrested was the shepherd the shepherd's wife, and the shepherd's father. The shepherd's father is also a shepherd. So I managed to trace the uh, shepherd's father, and I went to interview him, and he told me that um, he doesn't have any previous convictions or anything like that, and he was cleared in June this year completely. And he thought he was just arrested because they couldn't think of anyone else else to arrest. Right. He thought that, he, that, 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 that the shepherd's were the only people who could have possibly carried this off because they were in control of the sheep, if you see what I mean. Well, if you've got 1,500 uh, sheep, you, I guess you need what, uh, I don't know what they call it in England, but if you've got stolen merchandise, you need a fence, right? So, I mean, are these sheep branded? Are they identified? Um, yes, the- yeah. The, it's, in the UK, the, it's very well controlled. You know, they're all marked and... Uh, when they go to market, th- those marks are, are, are red, they're tagged. So, um, Well, you're not going to steal 1,500 sheep unless you can unload them for a profit, so they've got to show up somewhere, right, Victor? That's exactly what I was going to ask. I mean, th- with that many sheep on the market, th- they have to be showing up someplace. Is there any word of a, a large yeah. amount of mutton showing up anywhere? No, no, there's, there, there, there's not. And um, the shepherd did say to me, he said, if you were going to do that, you would need cooperation from several parties, you know, the drivers, the people rounding the sheep up, the, the abattoirs, if they were going to, um, you know, butcher the sheep. He said you just couldn't do it without someone finding out. Um, so it is a complete mystery. And it's the evidence from the detective that I spoke to um, who told me, and I've got this on tape, 
that the, 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 the gate was still padlocked, and that is the only gate. I've got video of all of this, and there was no evidence that any sheep had gone through there. So, interestingly, the same month, we have a UFO sighting 12 miles from that field, uh, described by uh, three witnesses as three times the width of the road, a huge egg-shaped craft. Uh, they could smell electric in the air, and this craft came, hovered over the road, and shot off at an incredible speed back towards the sea. So this is a coastal area. It's, it overlooks mm. the sea. The whole triangle is basically run, the coast runs down one side. Okay, let's, uh, let's step away for a moment. Richard uh, D. Hall, you stay put where you are. Victor stays with us. We'll come back. I mean, I'd like to find out, is this unprecedented, or have there been other mass animal disappearances? No. We'll get into that and uh, continue to delve into bizarre UK animal mutilations. And again, what is it that these ETs, if they're the culprits, what do they want? Why are they doing this? The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Back with more. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Couldn't think, possibly couldn't think of a, a more pastoral setting than a, a sheep farm in, in rural England. What would James Harriet think of this? 1,500 sheep, like just vanishing. This is sort of all creatures great and small meets Roswell. Uh, it's absolutely unbelievable. Uh, Richard D. Hall, a filmmaker, joins us on the line from the UK. His website is richplanet.net. I've linked up to it on my site on the homepage at richardserrett.com. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network. Um, Victor, I'll turn it over to you because yeah. I'm just scratching my head here. Yeah, I'd actually, uh, just we're, Richard and I were talking off mic here just a minute ago. Uh, you know, a lot of times this kind of thing happens, be it a UFO sighting or even with crop circles or or, or whatnot, um, the, the the local scuttlebutt gets going at the local pub or, you know, at a at a at a, at a bingo someplace or whatever it happens to be, where the locals uh, sit down and chat and you know wink wink. Someone says, well, yeah, I kind of know about this kind of thing, or I have a bit of an insight as to what might happen because you know Lonnie told me this. Or is there any local scuttlebutt that uh, that's going on and uh, among people that might have them speculate or even give some sort of answers as to what might have happened or sort of what's the word on the paddock okay well i went into a few establishments in the nearby village and they were very cagey um took me a while to get them just to acknowledge uh what had happened so one woman who runs the runs the bar she she said to me oh i'm not i don't think those sheep existed okay so that was her view on it uh, another woman in the shop she wouldn't even speak I said, look, I'm in search in this case, and she just shook her head as if to say, <laughs> get out of my shop sort of thing. So mm-hmm. mixed reaction. The guy in the post office was a bit more friendly. He was the one who told me that, you know, who had been arrested. Now, um, so sort of mixed response, really. But um, I'm, I'm fairly sure the sheep were there because the couple that I interviewed who live right next to the field, the woman, the wife, she witnessed the sheep at tea time, which is sort of 6 p.m., uh, and then she also witnessed the fact that they weren't there the following day, and I've got her on camera as a witness to that. So I'm fairly sure that the sheep were there. And, and I do know that the landowner, and who is also the animal owner, he's 
quite a wealthy estate owner in that area, and he has installed CCTV cameras as a result of that disappearance um, in the region. He's got them on, on the roads that, that can capture the drivers at various corners in the region. Richard, so has he, anything like this ever happened before, even on a smaller scale, a mass animal sure, disappearance? Yeah. Um, if we go back to the year 2000, um, about 50 miles west of Lincolnshire in Nottinghamshire, a similar number, 1,500, um, but they disappeared this time over four separate nights. Um, and there was 248 taken from a secured barn, and they were all in lamb ewes. So they were all pregnant, uh, and the logistics of getting a truck into that uh, yard, I've got photographs of the yard, and we've interviewed, the, or David Caton interviewed the farmer, the sheepdog was actually chained up in a in a kennel near 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 to where the sheep were, and it didn't wake or bark, so that was a mystery. Um, we've we've got case in we've got cases of sheep being or animals being moved. Um, there's a book called The Welsh Triangle by Peter Paget, and in that book he documents a place called Riverston Farm in the 1970s where a farmer was milking his cows, um, and he left them in the milking shed. And he walked across the farmyard, and the phone's ringing in, his, in the farmhouse. He answers the phone, and it's another farmer a mile up the road saying, "Why are your cows in my field?" And mm. he and he says, "I've just I've just uh, left them milking, in you know in, in the milk shed." And he says, "No, you haven't. They're in my field." And he walked back, and he's and they were all gone. 158 cows teleported to a nearby field. My. So and there's a case I've got here in uh, Oklahoma in the 1990s. 1,700 cows and calves disappeared from a ranch. Uh, so yes, there are other cases of this happening. And, and rustling uh, uh, has been ruled out in, in all those incidents? Well, certainly in the Ripperston Farm one. Uh, I'm not sure about the, the one in Oklahoma. Uh, There's another case in 1980, and this was associated with a UFO sighting, the Alan Godfrey case, a police officer, where a herd of cows appeared in a housing estate and then were moved to a rugby pitch. So there are, and recently, uh, those 400 sheep went from Aberdeen, which is in Scotland. Um, it's, uh, immediately, the police and the media will assume that they've been rustled, because really, there's, other, that's really the only explanation, other than the more exotic UFO explanation. It's just that this 1,500 sheep, they, they are, that was right in a UFO hotspot in the UK. So this is why I suspect something other than rustling, plus the actual number. It's, for me, it's logistically, it's just, it's just too big a number to, to get away with. I think. Just trying to connect a few dots here, too, again, Richard. Any, any and I'm really searching here for answers, any report of, of uh, in that area of, of any type of, you know, uh, crop, uh, crop circles or crop formations being formed, or, or is that something uh, that's extraneous? Circles, not that I'm aware of. No, I, okay. Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, but a lot of UFO sightings in... Mm. It's, the main town in that area is a place called Louth, which is quite a small town, and many, many articles in their local newspaper of UFOs being spotted has above it, a place called Mablethorpe, which is on the coast, again, within this 15-mile triangular region. Um, and in the 1990s, apparently, there's a radio transmitter there, uh, that was nicknamed by the locals Alien Tower because there were so many sightings in that region. With all now, these another, middle... another interesting, just one Sorry, point. Sorry, go ahead. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a huge tower 
one mile south of where this field was, where the sheep disappeared from. And now it's run by the RAF. It's, it's not a transmitter tower. It's actually a climbing frame, and it's got huge viewing platforms, which the RAF, the Royal Air Force, they, apparently I asked a local, I said, what that, what's that for? She says the Royal Air Force, they camp out at night on these viewing platforms. This is hundreds of feet high, and it overlooks the field, and it overlooks the entire region of this Lincolnshire Triangle. So I'm just wondering whether there's people in the Air Force observing what's going on. In, in all of these uh, cases, uh, either mutilation or mass animal disappearances, has anyone ever seen um, the culprit, let's say, some sort of a craft, with one of these unfortunate uh, animals, sort of, yes. I don't know, in the process that's... of being caught up in a, I don't know, a tractor yes. beam or anything like that? Okay, that's a good question. There's two cases that I know of. Um, one in uh, Linda Moulton Howe, one of Linda Moulton Howe's books. She describes a couple who witnessed a UFO come down and two beings get out, smaller than humans, and there's a cow there, and the cow is kind of paralyzed. These two beings wave their hands over the top of this cow and float it into the craft. That's the first case. As I say, that's in one of Linda Moulton Howe's books. The second case was in the UK in a place called Frodsham, which took, this was in 1978. Um, a spherical glowing craft came down, witnessed by four young men who were out poaching pheasant. They, um, they said the, the light was like an arc welder, it burned their eyes. Two beings get out of that craft. Again, a paralyzed cow just standing there, not moving. These two beings get out of the craft and they start erecting steelwork or poles around the cow, like building a cage around it. And then they, they didn't hang around for much longer after that. They didn't see whether the cow was taken into the craft. Um, but that was reported in a magazine called Flying Saucer Review in 1978. So there's two cases that I know of where a single animal has presumably been abducted by a UFO. Any idea? I mean, obviously we're into the world of speculation here, but Yes. Why would, you know, this is the common refrain, right? Why would these uh, civilizations, these ETs, travel light years to get here uh, to abduct 1,500 sheep or to mutilate a donkey or a stag? What, 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 what's behind all yes. this, Richard? Okay, that's a great question. Um, well, first off, I don't think they're traveling millions of light years or hundreds of light years, the taking the sheep and then going back. Um, um of the mind that there are uh, bases under the under the ocean, that's where I think they they are. Um, there are many many cases of discs coming out of the ocean. People witness discs, you know, as I say, coming out of the ocean. Um, I think they're they're possibly on this planet. Now, <clears throat> why you say why? I, I think the mutilation and the actual abduction that that they're, they're possibly for different purposes, but for me, the only reason why you would abduct that many sheep would be as a source of protein. Hmm. And then you say, well, protein for what or who? There's another possible explanation that I think uh, Linda Moulton Howe um, raised in her book, I think it was called uh, Alien Harvest, is hmm. that in some way, especially with the, uh, the, ca the, the cattle mutilations, the cow mutilations, the, uh, the samples that they take, because these animals draw uh, food from the from the planet, from you know, the eating the, the the hay or the grass or whatever, mm -hmm. it, it's thought that somehow these these tissue samples um, to whoever these extraterrestrials are 
they're a way of monitoring um, the, the the quality of the of the of the environment in some way or another, and it's mm-hmm. drawn up uh, through through the bovine DNA, and mm-hmm. the the ETs can actually tell what's going on on the planet with the soil and the grass uh, in terms of you know these samples now that's just another sort of possible explanation yeah uh, that's a very plausible explanation mm-hmm. another one is put forward by a guy called dr philip duke and he believes that the whole point of the uh, mutilation is at some point before the mutilation maybe three weeks before something is being put in the animal's blood uh, some kind of disease or uh, antibody and then the the animal then develops antibodies over a period of time mm-hmm. and that's what they're actually harvesting so they so basically they're using the animal as an incubator for something that they're growing that they need and he he, he believes that it's that, that they're creating antibodies that they then put in their abductees the, the human beings that they're mm-hmm. abducting mm-hmm. so they'll the, the, the might be inside an implant which releases some kind of antibody into mm-hmm. the abductee to protect that abductee from certain earth-based pathogens. So in other words, the abductees are very, very important to their program, so they protect them, and they're Mm -hmm. growing these antibodies um, within the animals. Wow. That's a long way to to go for an inoculation program, but um, it's it's fascinating. Uh, Listen, let's grab a quick call here. Uh, Darlene is in Hamilton, Ontario. Darlene? Go ahead. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. I have uh, two questions. Uh, One is, how do you find investigative people or reporters? And the second is, are you aware that there were a series of UFO sightings in Whitby and Newmarket just this past week? Okay, what was the first question again? How do you find investigative people or reporters? Investigative reporters. Okay, yeah, that's a good question. Okay, well, in my opinion... The mainstream reporters <laughs> are tools of the establishment. They're not. They're not um, really after the truth, in my opinion. They're they're they're, they're skeptics and they're debunkers um, many times. And yes, I am aware of recent UK UFO sightings. Uh, I think they've been passed off by the BBC as being space junk. Um, but I've not um, really read any detailed reports of that, but I know over several nights there has been activity recently in the UK. I think Darlene actually may have been referring to closer to home here, Whitby and Newmarket. They may have a counterpart in the UK, but their communities oh, yeah, not too... Oh, yeah, and Newmarket. Ah, there you go. Well, they're this, their sister cities are uh, uh, just uh, a few miles down the road here. Listen, Darlene, okay. Darlene and Hamilton, thank you for the call. Uh, Richard D. Hall, uh, 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 thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me on the show. All right. Strain, uh, Rich Planet, richplanet.net. That's the one. All right. Victor Vigiani, very quickly, you're, uh, you're speaking in St. Catharines. Tell us. That's correct. This Saturday, uh, Saturday, September the 29th, I'm speaking at the Paranormal and Wellness Conference in St. Catharines, Ontario. And I'll be presenting two separate uh, presentations, one at 11.30 to 12.15 and then lunch break, and then from 1.15 to 1.45. And if you want more information, go to www.ghostconference.com. And uh, perhaps I might see you there. I hope so. Victor, 
A pleasure as always. Uh, Tim Spreen, good job behind the board. Your inaugural voyage with The Conspiracy Show back next week. Alan Graham, the uh, brother-in-law of the late Jim Morrison, will tell us about the real Jim. Uh, also coming up, Nick Redfern, about uh, some of the strangest places anywhere on the planet. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.